This episode is brought to you by Upcase. Now that you've mastered the basics, Upcase makes it easy for you to take the next step. Not a boot camp or a MOOC, we're a finishing school. We'll show you how the best developers around tackle coding challenges, what their backgrounds are, and how they got to where they are. Stick with us, and soon you'll be taking the junior out of your title. Learn more at upcase.com. Welcome to Crossroads. Here we talk to experienced developers about how their programming journey has evolved. We ask about pivotal moments in their careers and what helped them take Junior out of their title. So today I'm really happy to be joined by George, who is a developer at ThoughtBot, and we are in our Boston offices. I'm be really keen to kind of get an intro from you and a little sort of spiel about what you do and what you're about. Sure. Hi, Natalie. Good to be here. <laughs> so... I've been a developer since about 2005, and before that I did a computer science degree, so that was, a, I guess, a very sort of traditional academic route into doing software development. After university, fell into doing some web freelancing, kind mm-hmm. of almost by accident, mm-hmm. and ended up doing that for about four years, and then learned Ruby, worked for a few startups, learned some Python, moved to Sweden, worked for more startups, and then joined ThoughtBot about five years ago. Okay, interesting. So you've had like lots of different sorts of experiences. Keen to jump into how you fell into freelancing, because I think that's something that a lot of people find a lot of mystery around. And from the freelancers I've spoken to in the past, it usually comes into a few categories. Some people end up freelancing because they don't want to work in a corporate environment. Some because they haven't found the jobs that, they, that really speak to them. Others because they've found a problem that's like interesting enough for them to dedicate sufficient amount of time and sort of spin out a company to solve. What was your experience? Honestly, it was much less intentional than mm. all that. I was graduating university and... I had a friend who was a designer, Mm -hmm. and they said that they had a project that they were doing the design on, and would I be interested in doing the development side of it? And I said, sure, that sounds like an interesting thing to do over the summer, Mm -hmm. and just kind of went from there. And I think that project went quite well, and it seemed to make sense after that to look for another project. So I just kept on going. So I wasn't explicitly trying to build a freelance company or build a career that way I just was offered a single job and because that went well I looked for the next one and the next one great and what sort of experiences or experience did you have before doing that job that were that were useful apart from the computer science degree because do you think having a computer science degree puts you in a position to become a freelancer straight away at the time I absolutely did think that (laughs) and looking back on it I was very unprepared. Mm. There's a really interesting Medium post that's been doing the rounds recently. The The title is, what if we interviewed translators the way we interview software developers? Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of central premise of the post is, what if someone who was going for a translating position was asked a bunch of linguistics questions rather than translating questions? Which is kind of how some some software development jobs get interviewed. Like There are a lot of computer science questions rather than software development questions. Mm-hmm. And there is like there's a gap there between the very theoretical computer science stuff and the very practical day-to-day software development stuff. And they definitely overlap. And I'm not trying to say that the computer science stuff isn't useful, but I think I had a much more theoretical understanding of what I should be doing rather than a practical understanding of how to do that in the real world. That sort of chimes with a lot of other computer science graduates who I've, I've spoken to. Is there anything you wish you'd done or if, if you were sort of to go back and do it over again and within your computer science degree, 
or advice that you would give to someone who's taking that path of things that they can do to kind of round off their skills and become more wholly ready for the next step, whatever they take, whether it's freelancing or moving into software development? I wish I'd paid more attention to tools. I learned a few programming languages while I was at university, but I didn't really pay attention to things like text editors. So I had so much more free time than I thought I did. I thought I was very busy, but actually comparing university to the real world, the real world, <laughs> yeah. I had a lot more time. And so like the learning curve of something like Vim, say, it can be, it can slow you down a little at first. You know, it can be a little bit, a little bit difficult to get from zero to, oh, I'm as fast as I would have been in Sublime or TextMate or whatever. But then you can go far, far further after that. And I wish I'd kind of spent some of that time and gone through some of that learning curve back then. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a lot of tooling around things like version control and project management. Like, I was not using Git. I started using Subversion at some point while I was freelancing, but I definitely wasn't doing that straight out of the gate. It wasn't, you know, oh, well, I'm writing a new piece of software. The first thing I should do is create a version control repository where I should keep this. And looking back, there are mistakes I made that that absolutely would have saved me from. There were times I was collaborating people with people and it would have been much easier if I had been using version control and those kind of things. But that that's not a very computer science-y thing to learn about because it's more about practical real-world implementation than it is about theory and and like the underlying reasons. So it just never came up in my degree course and I naively assumed that that degree course covered the practical things, not just the theory. Interesting, interesting. In the first project that you did, do any kind of standout moments that you can identify where you're like, oh crap, I don't know how to do this, and oh crap, actually, I've not been prepared for this at all, I'm going to have to learn X really fast in order to deliver this project? That very first project, I was doing a lot of front-end development, so I was writing a lot of HTML and CSS, and this was 2005, so I guess like CSS layouts were a thing, but table layouts were still around, and people were still doing that. And we did the whole thing with a CSS layout, and mm. we felt pretty great about that. And then we learned pretty late in the project that everyone internally at the company we were building this for used Internet Explorer for Mac, oh, no. which... Even then, Microsoft were no longer supporting. It was it was already considered to be an obsolete browser by the people who made it. But we didn't know what to do with that because it didn't support a lot of CSS. It was too old to, to have those capabilities. If I remember rightly, I think we ended up redoing the layout of the website with a table-based layout, which was really sad. <laughs> and that was a lot of duplicated effort, a lot of work that could have been saved by learning more about our client earlier on, but also possibly having a difficult conversation around like, hey, you think you need it to look right in that browser that you're using, but there are lots of reasons why you don't need that and why this thing we've been working on is going to be better for you in the future. Instead, we just redid a whole bunch of work. At what point in your career did you feel confident enough to have that sort of conversation with clients? I'm not sure I really did in that first stint of freelancing. I think it was once I started working in startups and product companies that I got more exposure to more of like the, the goals of the businesses I was working in and the the things outside of development that then gave me the the confidence to say, oh, this development thing is applicable or this one isn't or 
you know, we could solve that problem more easily and more effectively. But yeah, I think that came through through working with startups rather than freelancing. So would you say that after you were freelancing for a little while and you'd entered the startup scene, would you then still have considered yourself a junior developer or would you have said I was mid-level or more experienced? Like, I'm really, really interested to kind of dig into at what point people feel that transition happened and what the triggers were that led to that transition. I think there are lots of dimensions you can measure these things on. And so I would say, for example, my, my ability to write semantic HTML and good CSS that worked across a range of browsers was probably mid-level, maybe even getting on for senior. But like knowing how much of that to apply and when and, and my back-end code skills, which strangely the, the back-end code was, would probably be more related to the stuff I studied at university, but my ability to kind of structure things well and write code that was going to be maintainable and that I'd come back to in six months and think, oh yeah, I know what's going on here and I can work with this again. I would still say I was fairly junior on that stuff when I got into the startup world. Were you doing a lot of pair programming once you were in the startup world? Yes. Yeah, we actually, the team I worked with at a company called Revu, they tried being 100% pair programming and decided just before I joined not to do 100% pairing, but it was still very much in the culture that pairing was a good thing. So typically there'd be like three pairs of developers and a couple of people soloing at any given time. So it was majority pairing. And that worked really, really well in that environment for me because I learned a lot about Ruby and a lot about backend development from that team. Mm -hmm. And I got to teach them a lot about front-end development and HTML and CSS. And so it felt like a nice way of, of getting up to speed quickly on the technologies I didn't know well, but also a way of sharing the knowledge I did have within the team who, who weren't as strong in those areas. Definitely, definitely. What percentage sort of off the top of your head would you say are companies who pair program versus companies who don't have it as a core part of their culture? I think it's pretty rare to have it as a very a very central part of a culture. Mm. I wouldn't say there are that many companies I've met who are resistant to it. A lot of companies are open to having it there in the tool bag and grabbing it occasionally, but I've encountered very few who think it's a, an essential skill or an essential part of the workflow. Definitely. One thing that I often see in job applications and job descriptions, rather, is this idea that you have to be a ninja and a rock star and, you know, all those classic tropes that you see in the tech industry. And I, I often think that pair programming from all the people I've spoken to has been like a key sort of game changer for a lot of people's careers. And actually the thing that takes you from junior to not junior is it's it's one of the key levers that I keep seeing. But if companies are describing that they want rock stars and ninjas and people who don't really seem like they're, they're going to make great partners in pair programming, there seems to be a, a conflict of interest happening within what companies want and what actually works. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think software is, even if you're not pair programming, software is fundamentally collaborative. All the best things I've, I've worked on are things that I've worked on in a team where there's been people with different skills, complementary skills, even people with very similar skill sets who I could just bounce ideas off and have conversations with and get code review from and give code review to. It's more enjoyable and it, it's produced, at least for me, far better results than any time I've sat down on my own and written some stuff. Mm. When the, the kind of rock star term was really taking off, 
we used to talk about it with some friends and, and we'd always say I'd rather be the bass player you know I'd rather be <laughs> I'd rather be like the drummer yeah. yeah kind of in in a band and a part of something yeah. and like making a contribution but not the showy flashy solo person because mm. it's it's less fun less interesting and it doesn't produce as good results or at least it hasn't for me maybe there are people who are building amazing things solo like that but I'm not one of them yeah yeah when you're interviewing developers who are junior, what do you look for? I think it's really good in an interview situation when people are aware of what they do and don't know. If I'm interviewing someone who's more junior and they try and blag their way through a question that they don't know the answer to or something that they they haven't encountered before, it's usually pretty obvious and it doesn't <laughs> come across well. Whereas when someone says, oh, I don't know, but the first thing I would try is this, or I would go and read this documentation first and see if I could figure it out from that, or I would ask a colleague, or even could you get me started because I'm not sure how to approach this, that usually results in a more fruitful conversation. Mm. And I know that this person is, is honest, they're aware of what their strengths and weaknesses are, and they want to learn and grow and do new things rather than they want to look good. Yeah, I mean... I'm cringing slightly here because I think I can look back on the beginning of my career in tech and say like I definitely blagged but not because I, I I think I'm not an awful person but because because I felt like there was a pressure to know things off the top of your head and if you didn't know then you were completely written off and I think that sort of comes in as a result of the things that we've spoken about before like this this wanting to hire rock stars this culture which doesn't value pair programming this like this move towards the individual rather than the collaborative approach and so when you've got all of those sort of levers working in the way that tech is presented like we we see like superstar founders we see this very individualistic very sort of know-it-all trope is the one that's espoused it's hard to kind of go in there and show that you don't know some things because you have a certain perception of what tech ought to be like and what you ought to be like in order to enter that tech industry and it's only once I've been here for a couple of years now that actually the best work that I've done or the best clients I've had or the best jobs I've done have come as a result of me being like very very open about like here are all the things I don't know but I'm really good at finding out or I'm really interested in you know I'm curious about x and I'm curious about y and this is how I would find out this information but it it took a lot of time for me to get to that point so yeah yeah and I think the the industry moves so fast and there are so many new things Mm. all of the time that no one ever knows all of it, regardless of the length of time they've been around and the experience they have. This is often a thing that comes up when talking to potential clients for ThoughtBot. Someone will say, oh, have you used this one very specific (laughs) API or this one very specific tool? And the answer is usually no, but we've used so many APIs and tools that this one's not going to be any different and it's not going to be that hard to figure out. But I think it's important for people who are further into their careers to be willing to say I don't know as well yeah because if we present like the senior developer or whatever you want to call people who've lost the junior from their title <laughs> if we present that person as someone who never asks questions mm-hmm. then we're not presenting the reality of it which is there's always more to learn there's always something new or something deeper or some like another layer in the stack beyond the one that you already know yeah and no one's going to have all that stuff in their head all the time hundred percent. Which projects scare you and make you think, wow, I thought I was senior, but I feel junior again? That's a really good question. I think that I wouldn't necessarily say it scares me, but there's a certain thrill to not knowing 
how to approach a problem mm. to seeing a thing and thinking I have never built anything like that before and I'm not sure what the approach would be yeah so those definitely give me that feeling of oh this is going to be tricky I'm going to have to learn some stuff I think they, that feeling probably would have been more scary a few years back but I've felt it enough times and it's worked out well that I'm reasonably comfortable now to say oh I don't quite know how I'm going to approach that but it's going to be fun finding out so we'll we'll get there in the end. So Thoughtbot's quite famous for its apprentice program and I've often found that sort of walking around the offices there's just a lot of patience which I don't see in a lot of the industry like it feels like everyone's really rushing to like push product like get more users growth etc etc. How do you as a senior developer here keep things patient while there's a lot of pressure both on the industry side and sometimes maybe on the client side to like deliver, 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 deliver. Because of course, if you're not patient with the staff, with your peers or with the clients, then the quality of the product might suffer. How do you maintain that? And how do you kind of like create the space for that patience to thrive? I think there's a really good business argument for slowing down slightly. Mm. You mentioned the quality of the product suffering. Like there's, there's a certain speed beyond which things are going to be broken, mistakes are going to be made, stuff's going to be sloppy. This applies both to like not taking the time to do a thing well, but also just trying to work absurd numbers of hours in mm, the day, mm. where the short-term gain looks really good, but the longer you do it, the more you are introducing bugs and problems and you have to spend more time on refactoring. The code's harder to understand, so it's harder to change. And so I think there's a kind of communication aspect there of saying, well, maybe we could rush this large feature out in a day, but if we did that, then the next feature might take twice as long, and the one after that might take four times as long, and the one after that might take eight times as long, and before we know it, the whole project's ground to a halt. Yeah. So I think ThoughtBot teams move reasonably quickly, but without getting to that point where we're rushing. Mm. And I think that helps foster the environment of patience. Because if we're saying, well, we want to do this right and we want to be able to change this and we know that the business goals and priorities and everything else are going to have changed six times in the next year because we're often working with startups and that's the nature of the beast. Yeah. Then it's worth taking slightly more time right now to make something that's going to be easy to change in a year rather than rushing out a thing today, rushing out another thing tomorrow and then not being able to get any work done next week. So one thing that a lot of people who are juniors are excited about with the tech industry is how quickly it moves and how exciting the new technologies are you can play with, the sort of things that you can spin out and test in different environments, that you can make the same thing in Ruby as you can in Python and you can sort of look at the intricacies of why it's different and why it, why it might scale differently depending on the tools that you use. How do you manage those sorts of expectations of speed from from junior developers who've been sold the startup dream coming into a space like ThoughtBot or coming into an environment where it's more base players than rock stars. How do you calibrate that expectation versus reality piece? So in terms of like speed of delivery of individual features, you can talk about the kind of stuff I was just talking about with, with quality. In terms of pace of change, I think there are frequently tools that are used to solve the wrong problems or problems that are solved using the wrong tools because the tool is new and exciting and shiny and there's you know a, a feeling of having to keep up. Service-oriented architecture is a good example there. Like There are problems that it solves and most of those problems involve either 
very, very complex applications or very, very large numbers of developers. And most startups don't have either of those two things. Mm. And so most startups don't need a service-oriented architecture. But there is that, like, oh, I want to keep up with the industry. I want to keep up with the pace of change. Everyone's doing SOA now. I should do SOA. Oh, everyone's doing microservices now. I should do an even more complicated SOA. And I guess part of the transition in my mind between a junior developer and a senior developer would be not just understanding the tool and how to use it, but understanding what problem it solves and where it's applicable. Mm. And so if someone is wanting to run to keep up with the newest thing, but they don't have a problem that that solves, I'd want to kind of take a step backwards and say, well, why is it, why is it good? Mm. And if the answer is, oh, because it's new, then keep asking questions. Yeah. Yeah, One definitely. thing at Thoughtbot that helps with that is investment time. Yeah. So there is an opportunity to go and play with that cool new thing without necessarily using it on a client project. Yeah. So you can learn that, oh, well, this is a screwdriver and this is a hammer and they do slightly different things. And then the next time you're on a client project, you know which one of those you need because you've had a chance to see them. That's really, yeah, sort of a chance to sandbox things before you put them in a live environment. Though. That's really interesting. People often talk about from the responses I've gotten from fielding this question, that in order to become a senior developer, you just need time. And that time, from answers that I've, I've been looking at, varies from two years to six years to eight years. And I'm not sure where people are getting these numbers or where this... I don't know if it's a myth. It could be a reality, in, in a contextual reality. It might be true in one company it does take two years and another company it does take eight years. But I worry slightly when I see a specific number in place, which isn't validated by anyone in the industry actually saying it takes four years to become an experienced developer. And I wonder how you feel about this idea of like how much time it takes. Do you think it's time or do you think it's lines of code? Do you think it's time spent on the phone with clients? Like what ought to be filling that time in order for it to be leading towards experience? I think practice is really good which I guess is a slightly different thing than time. But yeah, I, I'm also uncomfortable about putting concrete numbers on, on this kind of thing, partly because everyone is very different. And mm. as I mentioned before, like there's lots of ways of measuring this and lots of ways of looking at it. So someone who's only been in the industry two years might be far better than I am at some particular thing. Mm. That might be using some tool or technique. It might be like a style of programming. You know, even after 12 years or so, I still haven't written anything significant using a functional language. Right. And so someone who's been in the industry two years and has been doing exclusively functional programming, their seniority level is going to beat mine in that one area. And because there are so many different tools and techniques and even if you just think about the web stack with like, everything that runs in the browser, everything mm. that runs in the server, the protocols for communicating between them, databases behind the scenes, architecture, there's even product design, figuring out what to build. There's a huge amount going on there. So just thinking of it as a single continuum from junior to senior seems pretty... Linear. Like, yeah, very linear and, and not to reflect the, the complexity of the reality of it. And then one person might just get CSS because it suits how their brain works or it's similar to something they've seen before mm. outside of software development. And so they become very proficient at that very, very quickly. And someone else might really struggle with that tool. And I don't think that, that putting those two different people with different learning styles or different past experience in front of that same thing for the same amount of time, you could then go, oh, they have the same 
Competency. Competency, yeah. yeah. But you could put the same two people in front of some other technology and the one who picked up CSS like a duck to water could struggle and mm. the other one could do great. You know, it's it's yeah. all it's very individual. It's very individual. One thing that you said that really spoke to me was when you talked about how linear that way of looking at things is. And so I wanted to jump into like lateral or holistic skills that you can build in order to become more senior. And in some of the responses we've been getting, people have been saying, well, I think that in order to become senior, I just need to put the time in and put the practice into learning my languages and learning how to apply them into different contexts and to make sure that, that those contexts are as appropriate as possible. And I think that's that's my route to becoming senior. Another person would say, I think I'm going to become senior when I feel as though I don't need to ask as many questions from my peers. And if I'm working autonomously, that will be the sign of experience for me. And other people actually have come across and said, well, I think I'll become senior when I'm able to give conference talks or lead workshops or teach and mentor other people. And so there's a real variance as to what people consider experience to be. And I I wondered from you if I could ask, not necessarily just from your experience, but when you look at people in the industry that you admire, what sort of qualities are they demonstrating and what sort of things can people be doing in order to practice those sorts of qualities? I think one universal thing outside of just programming itself and actually it, it cuts across a lot of the things you mentioned as well you know people saying oh well maybe I'll be experienced when I'm mentoring other people or when I'm giving conference talks or when I'm able to teach this all of those things are around communication to mm. some degree mm. I think being able to communicate effectively about what you're doing and why both to other technical people and to non-technical people is a really important component adjacent to the the coding mm. and some people kind of draw a little separation here between consulting and product companies yeah but i think that's a little bit artificial like if you're in a product company you still need to be able to talk to people in the company right and you might get more time to build a relationship with those people than you would in a consulting company where you you kind of move between teams fairly regularly but you still need to be able to talk about what you're doing and, yeah. and why and why it matters and why it might be taking longer than you thought or why there might be some better, faster way of doing it. So I think that might manifest itself as people feeling confident to give a conference talk or mentor someone else or teach someone else. And teaching a thing, whether that's speaking or writing or or like one-on-one stuff, is definitely a really good way of solidifying your own knowledge because people ask questions, you read back your draft blog post and realize there's a gap and you need to go learn that little bit to fill in. But all of it comes down to can you communicate about what you're doing? Oh, that's brilliant. One thing that we've spoken about briefly in the past is this idea of like going out of your comfort zone and working on skills which are important but uncomfortable. And for me, that sometimes means like, you know, I have to learn this new Python library and actually I really like writing blog posts and I like interviewing people, but it, learning that Python library is important for me to take the next step in my career. And you've spoken about sort of the sort of skills that developers might struggle with, like sales or for understanding user experience and everything else. Would you encourage people more junior in their career to invest more time in sort of rounding out those sorts of skills? Or would you sort of say, you'll hit the skills that you need when you need them? So, I mean, there's one school of thought that says, 
being an all-round is actually a really good idea because it means that you're sort of constantly thinking laterally and you're constantly being aware of different things that might affect how this product turns out. You're thinking about the sales lead, you're thinking about the marketing people, and you're not segmenting these routes to product launch. And instead, you're thinking about a very integrated approach to launching something. On the other side, it's like, well, you're a developer and your job is to develop. And so you really ought to focus on that. And if there's anything that other people need from you, then they can communicate that and you can communicate back. And so I'm I'm always really interested about where that boundary lies and how that works in careers specifically. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think it's very context dependent. If you work in a company with dedicated salespeople, for example, then understanding what those people do do is probably really helpful for you to do your job effectively because then you can communicate with that team but you may not have to have the same hands-on sales experiences if you work in a company like ThoughtBot that doesn't have dedicated salespeople and there are designers and developers going out and talking to potential customers. Mm. A thing I think about a lot with software development is abstractions tend to leak like we build these layers to contain the complexity of of something and then we build on top of that layer but often little bits of that complexity will leak through Mm. the abstraction and so it can be useful when those leaks happen and when you encounter those problems to understand the layer underneath the one that you're that you're working with so depending on the type of leak it might be that you know you're you're working on a rails app Mm. and it's actually really useful to know like DevOps or system administration, that kind of skill set, because there might be something to do with Unix process management that kind of leaks through into Ruby and becomes pretty important for how your application behaves in certain circumstances. Mm. There are other times when understanding some weird corner of the Ruby standard library is kind of useful to know a bit of C so you can go and read the source code of that Ruby method because some weird C behavior is leaking through to the Ruby layer. I think the same thing is kind of true for organizations. Like knowing a little bit about the thing that's adjacent to where you're working is going to make your job much easier. With the consulting work we do, I often say to clients, we're making a thing that's at the intersection of like your domain expertise and the company that you have and our domain expertise in building web applications. But unless we're both like working on the boundary of that and collaborating in that area, we're not going to build the right thing. Mm. So like we have to learn a little bit about the problem space we're working in and our clients have to learn a little bit from us about user experience or application development or just what things work well and don't work well on the web mm. and by gaining that knowledge of the thing that's like not quite your responsibility but right next to it you can do a better job of of doing your job and solving the technical problem it's mm. really interesting if you're a salesperson or a marketing person or a product person there are really clear KPIs around your performance, or in many cases, there are some KPIs around your performance. You know that if you sell things as a salesperson, you are doing well. And if you sell the number of things that you're supposed to sell, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. How does a developer know that they're doing well? There's a blog post that Joel Spolsky wrote about this, I think, years and years ago, where he talked about attempts that have been made to put metrics on developers. And I think one of the examples used was, or maybe we could measure the number of bugs that a developer closes (laughs) in the bug tracking system. Yeah. So, you know, that that might be like pivotal tracker stories that are accepted or Trello cards that are dragged into the last column or whatever system you use. And generally, they found that people would get really good at optimizing for the metric 
that was being used, not for the outcome that was desired. Yeah. So I think trying to quantify it in the same way that you can with sales, there's a fairly direct correlation between like we closed a project and the dollar amount went up and there's more work to do and that's good for the company. And like, yeah, it would be hard. It would be hard to say hit the, the number of clients without that having some good effect or sure. hit the number of dollars without that having some good effect. But sure. with software development, it's much harder to quantify. Much more recently, Brian Helmkamp from Code Climate gave a talk at the Code Climate Summit this year about the, some of the metrics they've been able to gather from all of the Git repos they have access to through Code Climate. And they were seeing things like, well, on average, people tend to close about two pull requests per week. So combining those two things, I think it's dangerous to say you should be closing two pull requests per week because mm. it's really easy to close two pull requests per mm. week by just you know spending less time and care and attention. But I think you can use those kind of metrics to, to sort of look back at your past self and say, well, have I been doing that so far? And if not, why not? Is there some problem in the process of my company that's slowing us down or is there something I could be doing better? But numerical metrics aside, like what can you actually yeah. lean on to know you're doing well? I mean, it's it, it also goes to performance reviews, right? And if you're a junior developer coming into a new company, not knowing what the metrics are or not the metrics not being clearly sort of shown to you or even existing, really, how do you know that you're ready to take the jump? Or how do you know that you're in the place to be moved up a gear if there's no sort of thing to sort of tick yourself off against. I've always found that really challenging also because a lot of the spaces that we work in are new and they don't have the same kind of corporate culture around them that a lot of other industries have like finance or law where it's like very clear like you jump through this hoop then you're at this level you jump through that hoop and then you're at that level. I wonder for junior developers entering this space there's a lot of anxiety or there's a lot of sort of feeling like you're sort of treading being careful not to tread on eggshells by by asking like well am i am i ready now am i am i even experienced because there's no real book that you know you're reading a gazillion blog posts a week you're listening to all the podcasts you possibly can and you're you're feeding yourself with as much information as possible but you you might still not be any closer to figuring out in my next review my next mid-year review or performance review how do I have the conversation where I say I think I'm ready to be moving up if there's nothing for me to measure myself against I think when I've when I've worked with more junior developers one of the most helpful gauges for me in understanding where they are and how things are going and what what the next goals should be is often reading the code people are writing and conveniently many companies including Thoughtbot have code review as part of their day-to-day mm-hmm. process so this mm-hmm. isn't something that we particularly have to go out of our way to do so if you're leaving feedback on pull requests and you notice that there's a pattern then that's an opportunity to say oh it seems like you know the area of object-oriented design something you could work on you know we're, we're often talking in the pull request reviews about the way these objects are broken up and structured and how many responsibilities they have or how they communicate with each other or whatever it may be. So here's a book about that you could read. And in that particular case, I'd probably say Puda by Sandy Metz, if anyone's wondering. But (laughs) that, I think, is one way of kind of goal setting and measuring progress is being able to say, okay, well, I was having these kind of conversations on pull requests. and, And out of that, 
I went away and learned this stuff, and now I'm having a different kind of conversation on on pull requests. And the, I don't think the goal is ever to like get to no feedback. Mm. You know, I don't think anyone's ever going to be submitting pull requests where just it's perfect. The, the perfect pull request. All of the comments just say, "Wow, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with this." But you can see improvement, pr- improvement, and progress there, yeah. especially if you look over time and if you look on aggregate, and you don't just think of each one as like, oh, well, this is one pull request, but you, you look back over a few months and say, oh, well, how, how did that go? But again, like, you, we go back to goal setting and we go back to, like, making the transition. It's like, yes, I can see that I have improved in abstract ways or in tangible ways. But are those abstract and tangible ways sufficient for me to now be considered an experienced developer? Or, yes, I can see that you know, I'm asking a different type of question, but is that question, is that sort of question in a different league or is it just like in a different language? You know, there's so much confusion around what that actually looks like if the goals aren't set from the beginning. And so one thing that I've seen in the ThoughtBot playbook and the apprentice scheme is that there are some pretty clear goals and there's like a consistent checking that's happening throughout. But earlier we spoke about how pair programming isn't the industry standard. It's a tool that very few people use, but when used well, it can do really, really good things. In the same way, goal setting for developers and kind of like having those very, very specific performance reviews aren't a standard. And I think a lot of people are just sort of like, well, does it mean if I'm just bold enough to ask for a raise or ask for a new position, then I'll get it? And it feels incredibly arbitrary and slightly sort of like the career's wild, wild west <laughs> of things. Yeah, I I think you're right. And I <laughs> wish I had a better answer to this. Mm. I think there's a lot of, a lot of it's kind of contextual. So, for example, with ThoughtBot and the Apprentice program, we do, the Apprentice is working with a mentor. They're talking daily. They're doing a more comprehensive check-in weekly about goals at the end of every month, there's a handoff to a new mentor with mm. a discussion of like overall progress towards the goal of finishing the apprenticeship and becoming a developer at ThoughtBot is, is usually the aim. So that is quite structured, but it involves input from a mentor who's willing to do that and, and put in that much time. What advice would you give to startups? Because you've worked in the startup scene and you've also mentored many developers. What advice would you give to startups or even companies who are hiring developers and aren't sure whether they're looking for junior developers, mid-level developers or senior developers? I know that's that's something that ThoughtBot helps a lot of companies with. So on one side, junior developers themselves aren't aware of how to position themselves on the marketplace. On the other side, people who know that they need technical stuff don't know how to ask for the right technical people and so there's like a there's like one group doesn't know who they are and the other group doesn't know how to find this group that doesn't know who they are what would you give as advice to the group who are looking for developers yeah so three three concrete things one would be tailor your interview process to the job that people are going to be doing if someone can reverse a c string in place without allocating heap memory who cares? Unless you're the string reversal in C company. <laughs> but if you're writing web apps in Ruby, you're probably never going to have to do that. Mm. So if someone can't perfectly write that complex code in a language that they're never going to have to use for their job on a whiteboard with no computer, that's not really a test of their skills. I've been in that interview. <laughs> and they probably are hiring the wrong people. Yeah. Because they're probably hiring the people who 
can do a Very theoretical specific, thing, yeah, yeah. and they need people to do a practical thing, and so it doesn't make a lot of sense. So a thing we do at Thoughtbot is we have pair programming on real stuff as part of the, the job interview. The last phase of the interview is a, a day in our office, and you spend half a day pairing with one person and half a day pairing with another person on whatever those two people would have been working on that day anyway. And it's nice for the applicant to see what is it actually like to work at Thoughtbot for a day. Mm. Would I like to have five of these every week? Mm. And it's nice for us as well to see, can this person actually do the real job? Not some simulation of the job, not some theory, but the actual job. So that's one thing, tailor the interview process to the job. Another thing I would say is look at your pipeline and how how it's going and then tailor your language. Like if you are looking for junior developers and junior developers aren't applying, then change your ad, make it more explicit. Look for things that could be off-putting or scary in there. Like rock stars. Like rock stars. There, there's a great tool that Pat Matfield wrote. Yeah, it's brilliant. So that is a good tool and it, it will call out things like subtly gender coded language as mm-hmm. well as just obnoxious words like <laughs> rockstar so like see who's applying and use that as feedback and tweak and change your your post and then the third thing I'd say is look at the team you have now and set people up for success Yeah. so if you're really really busy and you don't have time for all the, the features you need to ship and whoever's going to join your team next is going to have to hit the ground running and ship stuff on their own and no one's going to have time to train them or mentor them or help them out, then maybe don't hire someone fresh out of a boot camp who's going to need some mentorship because mm. you're not going to set that person up for success. Yeah. Whereas if you're in a more kind of stable situation where you're investing in the long-term growth of the team and you have some bandwidth in your team to provide mentorship and support and you're thinking about like long-term, then... Absolutely. Hire some junior people and and help them level up. This is something I wanted to touch on. On average, it looks like people stay in companies for 18 months to two years in the tech industry, especially on the engineering side. How do you extend that number and how do you manage things like people dropping off or people deciding to move on? I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing when people decide to move on because, I mean, we've both had careers which have had several iterations and I think it's actually been to our benefit to have had those iterations and made us better at the end but as a as a company surely it's it's quite exhausting having to like train retrain train retrain and kind of keep that the cohorts coming in not just because of the the resource effort and the resource allocation towards that but because Again, you're one of the very few companies who invest in pair programming quite heavily and invest in mentorship quite heavily. And so it's almost like if someone does go off, it's it's more resource has been allocated to training that individual than in another space. How do you deal with that? And how do you, what sort of challenges do you face keeping people on the ship? This is maybe kind of a, a bit of a stock answer, but the, the Daniel Pink book, Drive, I think oh, is okay. interesting for this, where it talks about people being motivated not solely by money like Mm. you have to pay people well enough that they're not worried Mm. but then the more motivating factors are i believe it's mastery so feeling like you're continually getting better at the thing you're doing autonomy having agency over how you do your work and purpose so understanding not just your one little bit of the machine but how all of it adds up to something that's worth doing i think that can be good for general 
motivation. And within those things, you know, mastery, there needs to be opportunities for people to learn and progress and feel like they're making progress. Mm. And in an apprenticeship at Thilbot, say, that's pretty structured and pretty clear. There's a very clear goal there. I think it's a little harder afterwards and a little more fuzzy to make sure that that is is happening and is is how people feel. We have we have things like investment time. We have conference policies, and people can buy books and all these kind of things mm. that to try and provide those opportunities. But it could maybe be more structured than it is. It could maybe be more more formalized than it is. How do you feel when you see someone who's had a CV which looks like eighteen months, two years, eighteen months, two years, eighteen months, two years? Does that affect your perception of them as a candidate at all? Or no, I actually don't pay a giant amount of attention to CVs in general. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll be looking for what technologies someone has used in production in the past, and I'll be looking for overall years' experience in the industry as a vague proxy for what to maybe expect. But we move very quickly from a CV review to a code sample review in the thought process, and I think seeing some work someone has done recently is much more telling about their kind of current skill level than necessarily the number of years or the number of years at this company or that company or how frequently they've moved around. A lot of companies are desperate to hire tech talent. ThoughtBot has, my perception is, a lot of people applying here. How have you done that? I think we have quite a good reputation in the developer world. We blog a lot. We contribute to open source. We speak at conferences. So people have heard our name, people have used our tools, and that really helps with with people wanting to come to us. Mm. I think also there's an attraction to a company that's led by people who make things. You know, there's not really that many people at ThoughtBot who aren't designers and developers. It's the CEO is a developer. You know, there's not some big agenda outside of making things. Yeah. making the right things and making good things, but making things. Mm. And there's not a huge side of the company who don't really understand what it's like to make things and what that means. So it's pretty easy to say to developers, hey, we're trying to make this a nice place for developers and we kind of know what that means because that's who we are. I keep saying developers. I should say designers as well. Just developer springs to mind more easily because that's my role. Of course, yeah. I think we're sort of getting towards the last the last question, which is, is there anything you don't know about junior developers that you wish you understood? Or is there anything that you think, hmm, I wonder? I think it's hard to generalize like to a, a large cohort of people like that. But I guess I don't quite know what people are looking for in the longer term. I think most most of the time when I talk to junior developers, they are looking for a job where they could get more experience. But I'm not sure what... The more experience is leading up to. Yeah, what's step two, what's step three? So you get that job, you get more experience. Then what? Is there a thing that you're looking to do after this? Is it that you really want to go into consultancy? I mean, you mentioned some things where people are like, oh, well, maybe if I'm teaching, I'll, I'll feel like I'm experienced. Or if I'm presenting at conferences, are those goals for people or just things they expect will naturally happen? Do people want to stay in development? Do they want to move into other areas like more product-focused things or more management-focused things? I, I'm i not sure I talk to 
people enough at the beginning of their careers when they're saying, oh, well, what do I do first about, well, what do you want to do after that? What's the vision? Yeah. 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 Okay, that's really interesting. But then I also don't think I could have answered that question fresh out of university. Mm. I just, I liked writing code and I wanted to do that. And there were people who'd pay me for it, so that seemed like a good idea. <laughs> You've been consistent, so <laughs> there's definitely that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. This has been a really fun chat. And I think um, we learned a lot from this conversation. So thank you. Thanks very much. Cheers. <laughs>